Hey, everybody. Thanks, as always, for tuning into Front Row Knowles. KJ and I can't thank you enough for continuing to listen as we get into, I think, our 10th year of Front Row Knowles. Also, a special thanks to Seminole Boosters, who continues to support the program. The schedule is out. Quick reminder, your ticket and priority renewal deadline is April 18th. Great schedule, great optimism, great excitement about what's ahead in 2023. None of it's possible without Seminole Boosters. So to those of you who are members, thank you. To those of you who are not, log on to SeminoleBoosters.com to learn more. And now, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Good day, everybody. Tom Block, Keith Jones with you. This is Front Row Knowles. Big show ahead as always. KJ, how are you? I am doing well, Tommy. Doing well. How How is the Block household uh, doing uh, Mardi Gras remote? Are y'all zooming in? Uh, no, we were we were not in New Orleans uh, for Fat Tuesday. Uh, and matter are fact, you zooming? Are you zooming? Oh, yeah, we did zoom in. We, we had a little Mardi Gras uh, bash over the weekend, and we zoomed in for... Uh, for those who don't know, not that you need a lesson from me on this and not that I'm an expert, but I, I, I not only stayed at a Holiday Inn Express once, uh, I also married somebody from New Orleans. So anyway, if you're ever going to go to Mardi Gras, it's not just uh, Fat Tuesday, which is obviously Mardi Gras, but the whole weekend leading up to it, the weekend prior, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, big days, Monday, not as much, Tuesday, the blowout. So there you go. Um, All I ever cake, wanted to know. We, we did eat lots of king cake, uh, which you can't go wrong with that. We're going to have uh, David Hale from ESPN will join us. We'll talk ACC. How about we talk contraction, Keith? What do you think? Can we just get BC on the phone and say, you know, we have a great time visiting Boston when the weather's good, but we've kind of considered things and we don't really need you. Well, I I suspect as time goes on, uh, you and I very rarely disagree, but when we do, we vehemently disagree. Vehemently. And, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is going to be one of them because I think Mr. Block is going to go with contraction, and I'm still saying, let's get Notre Dame in and then see where we go from there. Well, I'm just hoping Florida State ends up in another conference at some point, and then whatever's left in the ACC is not my worry. So that's kind of where I am. I'm not holding my breath on Notre Dame coming in, however. That's that's sort of been the the fantasy for a while that would save the ACC. I don't see that one happening either. Hey, it's my world. I get the dream in it. David Hale will talk about uh, the ramifications, potential ramifications of the Pac-12 if they can't get the TV deal they want, which would uh, potentially lead to a lot of dominoes moving around. Then Bob Ferrante will join us, and we'll we'll catch up on the FSU beat. And there's potential college football rules play, uh, rules changes in play. Uh, to shorten the game, Keith, any great suggestions or thoughts? We'll talk in more detail about what those are. Uh, would you first agree that it is needed? Yes, I would agree that it is needed. Um, I think uh, most fans uh, feel the same way. Uh, how to accomplish it, though, you know, it's, it's like everything else in life, Tommy. If you go from 98% competency to 99, that requires X amount of effort. But to go to 100% competency, it's about 10 times X. For that last one percent, I'm not sure we're focusing and getting to the right things to help speed things up, but we certainly need to. 
All right. Well, we'll dive into what the proposals are a little bit later in the show with Bob. David Hale is up next. Stay with us on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now back to Tom and Keith. We welcome you back to Front Row Knowles as we crank open that Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. And say hello to a longtime friend of the program, guy who used to cover Florida State back in the day, David Hale from ESPN. What what day was that, by the way, David? Uh, when did you stop through town? I've lost track. Um, I don't. I, I'm not sure that I like to think back that far. It reminds me that many, many days and years have passed since then. Uh, it would be 2012 and 2013. And, um, yeah, somehow an entire decade has gone by. I don't know how that happened. Well, I wouldn't have put it that far back, but those were good times for Florida State folks. So, <laughs> If, you, if but, you just black out all the bad times, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, exactly. Our listeners will know that uh, David is with ESPN. I'll call you guru. I know your title says something different than that, but uh, college football aficionado covers the ACC, obviously, and uh, always appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. So, uh the, the first thing, I really want to talk more about TV contracts and what's going on with the Pac-12 and all that, but uh, as long as we have J-Trav for Heisman and the hype train has departed the station and is thousands of miles from Tallahassee at this point, I think, what what are you buying from where you reside in, uh, I think you're still in Charlotte, uh, are, are you buying into this? What do you think about all the Florida State hype right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's perfectly deserved. It is... Um... I mean, we find it a team or two or three that we do this with every year. And I think sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. Uh, North Carolina last uh, two, two years ago was a good example of, I think maybe we got the cart ahead of the horse a little bit and, and we were not correct. Maybe uh, another guy, Florida State fans will know well, and, and A&M and Jimbo Fisher, we clearly got wrong last year. These things happen. I don't think they happen for nefarious reasons other than you look at talent, you look at talent returning and you say, hey, they're going to be better. I, I, we, we tend to follow a trend line and expect that trend line to continue. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I think there is certainly enough uh, evidence to suggest that there is a good reason to be optimistic about the trend line with Florida State. But what I, what I will say is that Mike Norvell has clearly done a tremendous job in rebuilding this program and in getting the culture right, getting the talent level back. All of that stuff is is great, but it's one thing to sort of be punching up from the bottom. The climb is is one thing. When you spend an offseason hearing the hype, it's another thing. And I think to some extent that was the beginning of FSU's downfall under Jimbo Fisher is when they kind of started believing the hype after 2013 and 2014 and uh, didn't think they had to work quite as hard to stay where they were or get ahead further, um, and they could just rely on being Florida State. I, I don't think that this – I think there's too many guys in that locker room that remember what 2020 and 2021 tasted like to allow that to happen this year. I think the culture in the locker room is markedly better, but it is a different challenge, and I think um, you, you really can't overlook what it is to go through – eight months of off season when people are patting you on the back and you haven't actually done anything yet. David, you mentioned coach Norvell, you mentioned program, the specific question. What, what do you think the ACC, ACC does think of Jordan Travis? Is, is he considered the real deal? I, I will say, I think, um, 
uh, you know, I've, I've talked to folks around several other programs who have at least wondered how sustainable this is because we're seeing Mike Norvell build a program in a way that we really haven't seen many coaches even attempt to build a program, let alone sustain one, because this is a new era of college football, frankly, right? I mean, what we're, what we're seeing uh, with the portal, with NIL, with the way that the player movement has evolved uh, is markedly different than anything you would have done three or four years ago to try to build a program. I mean, I, I can remember talking to coaches a decade ago who said, I won't even take JUCO transfers because um, I don't think they have time to truly acclimate to our program to be valuable to me in the long term. It's just not reality anymore. And, and to Mike Norvell's credit, he embraced the new reality much faster than most and has been really good at navigating it. I think, look, it is, is it a fair question to wonder if that is sustainable over the long term? Yeah, because we haven't seen anyone do it before. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, this happens in the pros all the time, right? Like rosters are changing constantly. Um, I, I think it is uh, certainly maybe not the ideal script that he would probably want to continue following every year where you're essentially taking half high school recruits and going into the transfer portal for eight, 10, 12 guys every year. I don't know if that's the path he would prefer to be taking, but I, I don't see any reason why you can't continue doing that, given that this is the way that college football is now. Um, look, a sample size of one successful year is always going to draw questions. But I think Mike Norvell, given all that he has been through there and, and the huge work that it required to get this program back to any sense of respectability after what the previous five years had been, um, it's it's hard to doubt at this point that he has a vision and, and a scheme that is effective. All right, David, we got months to talk about FSU, LSU, and preseason hype, and we've got spring practice in the way. And normally, the the silly season for college football is May, June, when we're counting the days till fall camp start, and that's when we hear all these conference realignment rumors. But with the Pac-12 having a TV contract up and then being in the middle of negotiations your colleague at ESPN Pete Thamel wrote an article earlier this week that uh, I think it just reiterated a lot of what we know and that is there, there's the haves and the have-nots and the ACC is still in the latter category there so I'm just curious has anything changed in your mind as uh, other than the fact that we're 12 months closer to 2036 and the end of the <laughs> ACC's current deal than last time we spoke with you no, I don't think anything has changed at all. Um, there is, uh, so I, I was just at the winter meeting. Well, I shouldn't say I was at, they kind of came to me, it was in Charlotte, but the, the ACC winter meetings a couple of weeks ago where the ADs, the presidents, and of course, Commissioner Jim Phillips met. And I think for a longer period than they have ever done before and more seriously than I have ever done before, discussed uh, uh, unequal weighted alternative revenue distribution. Um, they can't even decide what they want to call it, which gives you an idea of how hard it is to get everybody on the same page with it. Um, I think it is a concept that is being taken more seriously. Uh, and it's important for a number of reasons. One, because it might help benefit schools that want to compete at the highest level in football like Florida State and Clemson and Miami by giving them a greater share of revenue. Uh, bigger brands maybe get more revenue Teams that are more successful get more revenue. There's a lot of rationale behind it. Um, I don't think there's anything close to the two-thirds majority that is needed to implement it. And I've heard that from virtually everyone. I think people are open-minded, but there's not a plan out there that is going to, I think, convince everyone. And then the flip side of that, too, 
is even if you do it, I'm not sure that it really makes any sort of drastic change. I, I, from the numbers I've heard, you might, even if FSU got, you know, sort of its ideal dream scenario and how revenue is distributed, I don't think it would add more than maybe three or $4 million a year to their income from the ACC. So is that enough to really bridge a huge gap with the SEC or the Big Ten now? Um, I'm, nobody's going to shrug off money, free money, really, but I mean, that's, that's the reality of it is we're talking about uh, a revenue gap that could be 20, 30, $40 million a year at some point. So uh, no, I think one of the other reasons they've talked about revenue, unequal revenue distribution is whether it, it opens the door to trying to bring in other teams via expansion and expand markets. You get a little more TV money. You don't have to pay them the same as you're paying everybody else. Is there an upside to that? Maybe, but everything that I've heard is the ACC is not talking expansion at this point. Um, and the grant of rights still is holding firm. I mean, I, uh, some, some schools, several schools, and I would say, I don't think I'm letting a cat out of the bag to say Florida State is among them. I've had lawyers um, for a significant amount of time reviewing the grant of rights. Is there a, a way to approach this? Most of the folks that I've talked to said, look, if you want to take this to court and go through a prolonged legal battle and fight and fight and then pay a bunch of money on the other end, maybe there's a way you get out of this. Nobody wants to sustain or maintain a bad relationship uh, that is doomed from the start. But if, if there was an easy way out of this, somebody would have taken it already. So I think for the foreseeable future, it is business as usual for the ACC, for better or for worse. David, is not business as usual for the SEC. What, what do you make of the, what is it, $100 million that somebody's got to come up with for uh, Texas and Oklahoma to change conferences? Yeah, I mean, really what this comes down to is about where media revenue for a year for each team comes from or goes to. Uh, and that is problematic. But, you know, it's it, we talk about the, the Big Ten just signed a $1.3 billion TV deal you know, $100 million here and there. Oh, Trump, you find that in the cushions around uh, Greg Sankey's office in the SEC these days. And I mean, it, they would, nobody would be doing this if it wasn't the financially beneficial thing. At the end of the day, everything that happens in college football and, and largely that happens in college athletics is happening because somebody's making some money somewhere. Um, what this looks like, I think, at, at the end of the day for the SEC is going to be fascinating because, look, it is going to bring in a ton of money. I think there is a genuine question about like, what does it look like? Are they going to move to a nine game conference schedule? How are they going to set up scheduling? If you have all of these huge money spending teams all in the same conference, do they really, I mean, I hate the, the cliche of the SEC beats up on each other all the time, but, but do they, do they start to sort of um, eat up each other's success? Is there enough room on in, on that street that these guys are all living in for the neighborhood to exist uh, cooperatively. What we saw in the Big 12 with Texas in particular is they didn't play nice with others all the time. It will be very interesting to see how Texas deals with this new arrangement. I, I think there is going to be some real challenges to this new life, but look, at the end of the day, there's going to be some big paychecks coming in from the TV networks and, and other places, and that's what's driving the bus. Well, and, and with 12 spots, available versus four spots uh, you can have some teams with some spots that if they did beat up on each other all they got to do is get into the, the round robin and then they get to excel 
Yeah, and I, I got to tell you, I am not one who is looking forward to these conversations about why a four or five loss SEC team, SEC team belongs in the playoff over some other team because, you know, the SEC is going to be considered above and beyond everything else. I mean, I, I, frankly, what has Texas done over the last uh, 10 to 12 years to warrant being a part of that conversation in the first place? Uh, they will, they will, I'm sure, undoubtedly be given more credit just because they're playing in the SEC. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say all of that, but that is my, I'm not looking forward to these conversations we are inevitably going to be having. Hey, one last question on the conference front, uh, David, and then I'll switch gears. I, I really know the answer to this is no, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, has the ACC ever considered contraction? That's a really good question. And this is a, I, I wonder this too, when you start talking about the big money that's in the SEC and the Big Ten, at some point, doesn't somebody have to scratch their head and say like, why are we giving Vanderbilt and, and Indiana this money? Like or Rutgers, like, do we need to be doing this? Like, why, what are they, what did they do, done to do this? And I think um, nobody wants to talk about contraction because uh, for a number of reasons. One, I mean, the grant of rights is, it works both ways, right? Like you can't kick out uh, Syracuse because they have signed that same contract that is keeping Florida state is also forcing you to keep Syracuse to a certain extent. Uh, I think two, it's a bad look and there's not really a lot of precedent for it. There's temple in the big East, but that was a little bit different scenario. Um, there's a whole, you know, the whole narrative about other sports, non-revenue sports and academics and all the other stuff that, um, the powers that be love giving lip service to without actually believing in, I think, most of the time. But but that stuff does come into to the conversation. Uh, and I, I think at the end of the day, when we start talking about weighted revenue distribution, that, that is the closest we're going to come, I think, in the near future to contraction of saying, you're not carrying your weight, Boston College or Syracuse or whoever you want to apply this to. You're not bringing in the same revenue that everybody else is to the league. Why are we splitting it evenly with you? We're not saying you have to leave. We're just saying you can't take as much. Um, and I think that's, the, I, I've talked to a couple of ADs who said like, exact, like exact, essentially what I was saying before is this, is the rep, weighted revenue going to change Florida State's financial fortunes? No, but sort of the principle behind it um, I think might matter to some to some folks at Clemson and Miami and, and Florida State and others. So I, I think that's the closest thing. Now, again, 2030, 2035, 2040, ask me again, because I think the, the, the politics and the business and the landscape of college football are changing really rapidly. And while it doesn't seem like a feasible step forward today, I would not be shocked if in 10 or 15 years, that's something that we're talking about. And maybe, frankly, something that, some of those other teams want to opt into, you know, we, we could be, frankly, if the courts uh, go certain ways and certain cases move forward, uh, we could be at a point where we're having to pay players and there has to be sort of a split between schools that want to be professional and want to remain amateur. And um, you might see some schools decide to opt out of a conference to go and kind of maintain sort of an Ivy League type of structure while other schools stay in and maintain more of a professional, you know, semi NFL structure. More fun ahead. Uh, I tell you what, we know you're on deadline, uh, David Hale. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll be kind tonight. We'll let you go now and uh, get back to where we, we look forward to catching up, though. Always appreciate your insight on this. And I can tell you from a Tallahassee standpoint, it's going to be a long haul until we get to August or more specifically Labor Day Sunday night. 
<laughs> well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's nice to have. I, I was talking with my colleague, Andrea Adelson, today, and uh, we were having a conversation. She had talked to our colleague, Bill Connolly, about his SP Plus rankings, and he said he was getting uh, getting harassed by FSU fans who said that the offense was being underrated and the defense was being overrated. And I said, when you've got FSU Twitter all up in arms about any number of things, that's the real sign that Florida State's back. People have got some excitement, some energy for the offseason. I'm glad to have it. Uh, it'll be a good excuse for me to get down to Tallahassee again soon, too. So uh, I'm thrilled to be having an offseason. As much as it seems like a long one, I'll take it if we can talk good things about Florida State for a change. Hey, what story did you procrastinate on, by the way, David? Can you share that? Uh, I think that's still under the radar at the moment. Gotcha. And I'll, I'll let you know when it's actually finished. I'll be sure to let you know. Okay. All right. David Hale from ESPN. We appreciate it. We'll be back with more Front Row Knowles right after this. Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. We will keep the Earl Bacon Agency hotline open and say hello to our Osceola insider, Bob Ferrante and Bob uh, it is good to see you. We always appreciate David Hale. He had a good conference-wide sort of national perspective there. Uh, the answer, by the way, just to let the cat out of the bag since you weren't participating, uh, he doesn't see anything changing. And nothing is imminent on the ACC uh, horizon in terms of conference realignment. Yeah, I think that's the the thing that we are hung up on, you know, the, these past couple of years. Remember, we talked about West Virginia whenever that was a year or two ago. Did they make sense? Did they bring added value to the conference to raise that per school allocation? Um, I, I think SMU has, has kind of put themselves out there. Are they a school for one of these power conferences, one of these power fives, you know, based on having a piece of, of the Dallas or Texas market? Um, there aren't great options. I, I think that's that's in part the reality, but it seems like every year, we, we do get a curveball in some regard, whether it's a, a Southern Cal UCLA or, or a Texas Oklahoma. So the, the question really is just where do these dominoes eventually go? Well, Bob, you know, Mr. Block is on top of this and he's already talking contraction, not expansion, contraction. Let's get Ooh. rid of some people. Well, I, I, other than Notre Dame, which is the school that's going to bring enough that when you do the division actually means more per school in the ACC? To me, they all mean less based on unless you get somebody, you know, unless Penn State wants to leave the Big Ten, right? Or you get a big name. Um, we didn't we didn't talk the specifics of it, but uh, just brushed over the fact that the Pac-12 is in the middle of its contract negotiations. And based on the fact that the, the conference had to come out and issue a statement about how everything was going so swimmingly. It, it would uh, lead us all to believe that nothing is going well and they're not going to get as much as what they're hoping for. And it's to the point, Bob, and you've seen this story from Pete Thamel and, and others that uh, they think it, or he thinks if, if the PAC 12 doesn't get a decent dollar amount comparable to the big 12, four schools are going to leave and, and bolt to the big 12. And that leaves Oregon and, and, uh, Washington, I guess, going to the Big Ten and the Pac-12 will completely fall apart. Yeah, just the fact that they had to put out the statement, put it out on Twitter, which was immediately ridiculed, I, I think, by you know fans and media alike. It, it tells you that you know everything is not fine out in Pac-12 country. I don't know where this goes from their standpoint. 
I'm very happy I, I don't work in PR for the Pac-12 because that's a, a pretty much miserable, no move is a good move type of job. There's always been speculation that possibly Apple would jump in, that there would be some you know, fabulous streaming deal. Somebody who wants to get into the live sports space would be you know, really intrigued and, and that might be a jumping off point for them. You know, Apple's gotten in a little bit on Major League Baseball. And so there are some considerations. Would Netflix try and do something to counteract um, the competitiveness of these different streaming options that are out there? You know, we're all kind of weighing how much do we really want this streaming service? How much do we want that streaming service? And so I, I do think live sports is the equalizer for somebody. I'm just not sure the Pac-12 without Southern Cal and UCLA has anything that's that's truly attractive on, on maybe a more national scale on, on a on a very regional scale. Then I think maybe that answer is yes. All right, the heck with all the Pac-12 stuff. Let's get back to Florida State on the diamond. On the diamond, the ladies go down to Clearwater. They go three and two and actually move up in the rankings. Florida State victorious over Jacksonville on the baseball diamond tonight. Um, Link Jared and company start four and zero. Oh. Um, some pretty good early success uh, for those two programs. I, I think the baseball one is is pretty satisfying. That this is this is very much what Link Jarrett told us to expect. That they had some pitching, but it was really green, and it was going to be an experiment to see how deep the starters could go into games. They wanted those veterans out of the bullpen to sort of be able to put out fires and, and, and multi inning fires. They've done that. I, I think this has been the lineup that we thought it could be top to bottom. They were going to hit, hit for average, hit for power. They, they've done it. There's a lot of good bats up and down. I, I didn't expect to be wowed at all by, by a Nander DeSatis, a guy who, who's kind of bounced back after a year at Missouri. But, but they've got some, some good young prospects out there. I think this is a team that you're going to be proud to watch as a Florida State baseball fan after some more difficult, um, you know, some difficult seasons there. They had struggled to win a road midweek game these last couple of years. They did that Tuesday night in Jacksonville in, in a very big way. So I think that's a, that's a huge positive going to that TCU series. You know, on, on the softball side, I, I think there has been some criticism, fans wanting more, wanting a more dominant Florida State. But when you realize one of those losses is to UCLA, now the nation's number one team. One of those losses is to Montana Fouts, arguably one of the nation's top pitchers, you know, in a 2-1 pitching duel. You have to kind of just say Florida State is scheduling really well by playing in these types of tournaments. Uh, this Clearwater tournament being, again, one of the most prestigious out there this time of year. I think this is really great experience for Florida State. Juan Alameda wants to throw the pitchers out there wants to see are, are they able to swim or are they treading water are they sinking you know she really wants to find out where they are at this stage in their development and that's that's a good thing so so the results might not always be pleasing but in the end it's that experience that i think is what will make this team better bob going back to baseball it was noticeable that fsu uh put the ball in play made some contact didn't strike out a ton uh, I was just looking at the the box score for Tuesday. They struck out 12 times in JU, so that's more than I think that was what 15 times all weekend. Or, 
12 times Tuesday night. But bottom line, uh, early returns would indicate that it that is going to be a different approach at the plate and, and different results. I think the asterisk by all of this is James Madison's pitching doesn't really stack up against what you're going to see down the road. And, and that was kind of, are the early returns, hey, Florida State is really going to put the ball in play, um, not give up those easy outs being the strikeouts. If you put the ball in play, something good might just happen by doing so. You might might force an error. You might get an infield hit. You might be more productive. Um, in the end, I liked that they scored 11 runs. I liked that they used so many different pitchers. We were kind of curious who would start. And in the end, some of these games, um, it has followed that trend of it doesn't exactly matter who starts. It's it's Link Jarrett and Chuck Rostano coming up with a plan to get you to that 27th out. And, and they're getting very, very creative in how they adapt and, and just find different guys to throw out there on the mound. So I, I think we're seeing some positives as far as just coaches understanding the roster, understanding when to, to throw a pitcher out there and get the most out of them. All right, Bob, we're two weeks away from spring ball. You're finishing up tour of duty. And uh, based on everything I'm hearing, the topic du jour right now is the governor signing the new Florida NIL deal. What in the world? I know we won't understand what the changes in the Florida law means until a little later, but what, are, what do you think the initial reaction is and, and what is your take on Florida amending what the university can be involved in relative to name, image, likeness? You know, as, we, as we've seen, I think NIL kept moving, kept evolving. And initially, this legislation was to protect coaches, administrators, ADs, and saying, okay, you need to be insulated from making these deals, um, being that facilitator of a deal with a business person, whether that's a booster or a business or, or whatnot. Then other states jumped in and did their own laws. And Congress never took action because the, N the NCAA never took action and then Congress never took action. So we're left with however many different laws on, on a state-by-state -state basis. So again, the fascination of that is, well, it was almost the Wild West, but it was the Wild West and, and Michael Alford can't really do very much about it. And Leonard Hamilton can't do very much about it. You can't very much have a conversation with his current players or prospects. And, and, and you saw that disparity on a coach-by-coach, state-by-state basis. I think the, the very big, big takeaway at a very broad level is just that those conversations can be had by everyone. You know, a player can come in the office and talk. A, a business person can talk. A coach can be active if needed. Administrators the same way. Where this goes, where, where it goes eventually, I think is still sort of an uncertainty but but I do think this is what this is what Michael Alford has wanted this is what the coaches have wanted um the question still is we I think we've talked about this in weeks past if you are an FSU fan you still have to ask yourself who do I give to being the boosters being a rising spear a battle's end you have to make those decisions as far as who you want to support what projects or can you support multiple items and how do you go about doing that i think for everybody you're kind of asking what's personal to you and your family as far as 
how you want to support Florida State people. All right, Bob, let's go back on the field. I'm sure you saw the story. I think I'll give Ross Dellinger credit. He's the first one I saw with it from Sports Illustrated. Uh, and this has been pretty cloak and dagger thus far, but college football, whichever committee it is, I don't know how many committees we are away from them voting on it, but they're looking into rules changes to speed up the game. And uh, four proposals or, or four ideas, two of them not controversial at all. One is uh, one of those is, you can't call consecutive timeouts. So if you're trying to ice a kicker and you got three timeouts left, you can't just run them all empty. Uh, you won't extend a quarter for a defensive penalty. You just would pick up that play in the next quarter. So that's going to save minimal time, those two. But the ones that are more controversial are a running clock after an offense gains a first down. I'll stop there, uh, except for within two minutes of a half and, and the final two minutes of a game. Currently, college football, obviously, it stops and, until the ball is, is reset or whatever after a first down. What do you think? I, I, I got to be honest. I, I haven't taken a deep dive into it to understand all the ramifications. I'm not big on, on radical rule change here. I, I think what we're looking, though, toward is fans are saying these games are, are too long and, and, and they can be bogged down at points. Everybody's kind of looking at the pace of play. I think baseball very much is, is doing that with some of their, their rule changes at, at various levels. I'm not sure I have the best answers. We've talked, you know, for example, with, with reviews. I, I know at times you've said, hey, hey, just play through it. Let targeting be reviewed by the league office maybe a day or two later. I'm a big proponent of you've got 90 seconds for these reviews. Figure it out. If you can't overturn the call on the field within a 90-second window, move on to the overall broad point of what Ross is reporting. I, I think is, is just how can we expedite the game just a little bit because these games are getting very, very long. Do you need two timeouts in a row? Do you need to ice a kicker twice or maybe even three times just, just to kind of prove your point and not leave that timeout in your back pocket? I, I, I don't, I think a lot of those things are, are just a little bit unnecessary and, and fans are, are speaking. And, and this is, some of these decisions should be made with the fans in mind. What do they want? What are they kind of asking? And in the end, I think what they're saying to the networks are, we want shorter games. You know, we we want something that's just a little bit in a in a tighter package. How come nobody's talking about the two minute and thirty second television timeouts, and in some cases the three minute and fifteen second television timeout? Oh, that's because that generates revenue. Never mind. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, bad move, bad move. Patrick, Patrick Burnham, the Osceola's own, was was tweeting about that this week, and I, I didn't engage, but you answered the question there, Keith, because there's dollars involved. Uh, for the record, Bob, I'm not opposed to any of those first three that uh, I mentioned. I might suggest that you could stop the clock on first downs with five minutes remaining in the second quarter and the half. So if you're two scores down midway through the fourth quarter, there's a little bit of an element left to to stop the clock, but none of those bother me. The other one that, that's that's more controversial at this point is the idea that they would have the clock run after an incomplete pass once the ball has been spotted for play. That one, I don't really, I'm not on board with that one. It, it doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. I, again, there, there is a theory that eventually we might go toward pay-per-view within college football, within, within a lot of sports. And that concept, like like you guys are talking about, the the timeout that takes two minutes and thirty seconds or three minutes plus, well, pay per view might solve some of that. 
again, if people are willing to pay for it, I think in the end right now, we're, we're, we're stuck with, with long timeouts that, that I think really frustrate the, the pace of a game, but they maybe make it better for offenses as far as building in, you know, game planning and, and preparing for drives because you've got these long kind of pseudo timeouts. Instead of having three timeouts, a coach can say, well, I've got an extra one here before my drive or an extra one there. And conversely, maybe a defensive coordinator says, well, that is time for my guys to recharge, you know, before they try and force a three and out. So I, I don't love these long timeouts, but I think coaches might say that they serve some type of purpose as far as in-game coaching too. He is Bob Ferrantair. Oh, go ahead. Gene. I have a headache. I can't help you with that one. I have a headache. Hey, Keith, you know, let's get to the heart of the issue. You never realized that the commercials were two minutes and 45 seconds or 315 until they put a damn scoreboard right there holding it on the field so you can count it down, which they did a few years ago. And now we all know how long it is. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not real bright, but I am observant. <laughs> all right, Bob. Thank you, sir. We'll let you go. Bob Ferrant there, Osceola Insider, more Front Row Knowles right after this. Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. A few minutes left to finish up, Keith. I'll let you weigh in on some of those proposed rule changes a little bit uh, here in this segment. I appreciate Bob Ferrante joining us. I don't know that I uh, seconded his uh, his motion or his notion there, but I do agree that something not on the table right now, but a way to speed up games would be to put a, either put a time limit on replay reviews or put a limit on how many reviews you can have. Maybe each team gets one and you review everything in the last two minutes of the, of either half. And other than that, you just live with the human error. That would, I mean, Lord knows in the ACC, we will review the heck out of whether it's going to be third and eight and a half or third and nine and take four minutes to do it. Exactly. And, and again, that goes back to another, another thing you could do is obviously the game stops every time you have a penalty. And you and I have talked uh, about the fact that it appears, and we'll stand by it, that if you're officiating in the SEC and there's a question, uh, you leave your flag in your pocket and if you're in the ACC and there's a question you throw the flag that would take care of a number of things uh, I like the idea of running the clock after the first down after the ball's been set I'm, I'm a absolute traditionalist I think if the ball is incomplete the ball you know the, the clock sh should stop because that would eventually uh, effectively uh, you know kill the, the the ability to just spike the ball and stop the clock unless it's inside two minutes or five minutes. But I think there are some things they can do to tweak it. I don't look for radical changes. I'm like Bob. I don't want radical changes. But but you pick up three, four, five minutes, seven minutes, somewhere along the line, you'd go a long way towards making fans happy. This isn't actually part of the game, Keith, because the clock hasn't started. Do we need a coin toss? Can we just, can we just, I mean, in baseball, they flip the coin to see who's going to be the home team in the regionals before the game. Nobody sees it. And you just come out and play. Do we need that five minutes before we kick off? Well, I guess that uh, involves whatever the honorary captains unions want to have for their members 
uh, being honorary captains and recognized before the game uh, kicks off. I guess th that's not the part of the game anybody's complaining about because that's when the hype is the highest before the opening kickoff. But, you know, it's five more minutes at the stadium. Just throwing out ideas here, Keith. Good ideas lead to bad ideas, but just don't harp on the bad ideas. Yeah, I do think, and this is, we've been harping on this forever, consistency across the board with officials. If, if you're not going to have a national uh, allegiance of refs, can we all administer replay review the same way? Can we even get that straight? But no, that's got to be different game to game and conference to conference too, which drives me crazy. I, I really do think, uh, you know, and then sometimes the camera angles just aren't as good. I mean, at some point there's going to be some human error and we don't need to review every play. That's kind of where I am at this point. We've seen enough of it. So you're not in favor of going to the electronic balls and strikes on the baseball diamond. I'm talking about uh, football, not baseball right now. <laughs> I'm just asking, Tommy. I'm just asking. But while you're at it, the technology exists that we don't have to have a couple of old guys holding two orange things upright with a chain connecting and the run out and measure if it's a first down, doesn't it? I mean, can we get past that? Wasn't one of the playoff games in the NFL, they broke the chain. They had to stop play to go get the second set of chains. I mean – on TV, they already put the exact yard marker up, right? So we could just go by what's there. We already know where 10 yards is. Now, that line is not accurate, Tom. You know that. I, of course not, because we have a chain, and that last little link <laughs> ensures that we're accurate when they unfurl that thing. I don't know. I think there's some things we – there's some changes we could make in 30 years from now or 100 years, people – they used to do what with a chain? I mean, we'd all get over it. It'd be all right. All right, we're out of time, Keith. More fun next week. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Front Row Knowles.